I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Ben Weingarten. And I'm Inez Stepman. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Emin Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast. So welcome back, everyone. It's been a very newsy week, so we're going to dive right in here without much interruption. Emily will lead us off by talking about the government shutdown that wasn't and the ensuing drama and the fallout in the House this week pertaining to Kevin McCarthy, Matt Gates, and others. Then I'm going to talk about uh, how Dianne Feinstein has passed away and Gavin Newsom has appointed a somewhat dubious successor to be her temporary, uh, at least appointed successor until the election next fall. A lot of drama there pertaining to Gavin Newsom, always a fun topic on this show. Then Ben will talk about the Biden impeachment inquiry, which also started last week. I told you this was a very newsy week. And then to cap things off, another major news item, and as we'll talk about the bringing back of student loan repayments and the dilemma for student loans going forward. One of Vanessa's favorite topics, if, I'm, if I can take the liberty of saying that, of course. But Emily, without further ado, why don't you lead us off? Well, I'm sure everybody's realized or uh, noticed that Capitol Hill is in chaos, which we'll start by saying is never necessarily a bad thing. Uh, you know, there's there's something to the chaos that you know can disrupt the uniparty, can disrupt uh, the way the business of usual as usual in Washington D.C. Uh, with the context, thinking specifically of how actually Newt Gingrich came in and disrupted what forty years of House leadership by Democrats. Uh, that disruption was ultimately constructive. And so the chaos isn't in and of itself bad. But after Republicans, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy uh, leading the charge, averted a government shutdown this weekend, Matt Gates is now uh, filing a motion to vacate. This is a fluid situation. We are recording on Tuesday morning. And so I think actually before the day elapses, it's possible that they're getting on a, a motion to table, which means if Kevin McCarthy wins out the motion to table, they won't have this vote on whether or not to vacate the chair. So that would be whether or not to oust Kevin McCarthy from his position as Speaker of the House. Um, or they will successfully, uh, the conservatives will successfully prevent the motion to table the motion to vacate. I know this is really procedural, but uh, if you're you know, looking to follow along at home, if that happens, then McCarthy will actually face a vote. So far, there are about three Republicans, uh, maybe four. You have Matt Gates, you have Bob Good, uh, you have Andy Biggs, and a couple others, maybe just one other, um, and a handful of maybes in terms of whether or not to, who, who actually support ousting McCarthy from his position. McCarthy is now in a position where he may need to uh, strike a deal with Hakeem Jeffries, who's the Democratic leader, uh, to remain in power because with the support of Democrats, he can basically, he, he would easily have enough support from Republicans, even about half the Freedom Caucus, if not more. Uh, people like Chip Roy are saying, Byron Donalds are saying, it is not the time to vote on a motion to vacate. So all that is to say, Kevin McCarthy has a lot of support, but that doesn't matter because his majority is so slim that if he loses just a little bit of support uh, and Democrats are able to make a deal with somebody like Matt Gates, it can go really poorly for him. I'm curious as what the group's thoughts are on everything that transpired over the course of the last week. One thing I'll say is that I think 
Gates learned from the speakership battle, uh, that he can extract a lot of concessions out of Kevin McCarthy because of the slim majority. And where Chip Roy, um, you know, thought that he, and you, you could go back to the debt limit fight as well earlier this year, Chip Roy was, you know, sort of realistic uh, and, and people in his camp were realistic about knowing when to say, OK, we're not going to you fundamentally change the House of Representatives in the spending shutdown. We've extracted as much as we can. Realistically, we have to move on. Um, that, I think, is probably the, the correct perspective. It does not, however, bother me too much uh, that other Republicans said, you know, the hell with it, shut it all down. Uh, who cares? You know, it, this is our leverage that we have in a slim majority. Shut it down. Uh, doesn't shutdown doesn't have to last forever, but this is the only leverage that we have uh, to get real spending cuts uh, and to, to really do things like stop funding to Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. Now, whether that strategy ultimately would have been successful, I think I'm, I'm probably in the Chip Roy camp, camp that you, it, it may not have been ultimately. Uh, but I'll toss it open to the group with the likelihood that this stopgap spending bill uh, is going to make for a, uh, let's say, uh, frenzied holiday season here in Washington, D.C., because uh, they're going to have to actually come to another agreement sooner rather than later. And whether or not Kevin McCarthy is ousted, rubber meets the road on spending before the end of the year. So, I mean, I guess my first reaction is, um, you know, when we start getting into the quirks of House procedure, Emily, you know, where is Rachel Bovard when she is really needed, right? Um, although I guess she's more of a Senate expert, technically, if you want to really go there. But Look, I mean, I, I, I'm I, not sure that I have a dog in this fight, to be totally honest with you. So back in January, when a lot of people in kind of establishment, kind of con ink media were lining up like ducks in a row behind McCarthy, I was very critical of that. I, I was very supportive of folks like Chip Roy, Andy Biggs, Scott Perry from Pennsylvania, and all of those who made McCarthy really work for this. And they actually accomplished something. They, they extracted meaningful concessions out of that. Um, and I and I thought that was worthwhile. And I thought that those even conservative commentators who were criticizing kind of the hardliners for for not capitulating early in the process really had a lot of ache on their face at the end of the day when we had the receipts. But here, my problem all along for this September kind of, you know, will they shut down, will they not shut down debate was I never fully understood what they were asking for. And there were a lot of kind of, you know, we want to cut baseline spending, we want to add border security, we want to stop aid to Ukraine. Okay, I, I agree with literally all three of those planks, but it was never clearly articulated what it was. And then at, at the very end, when Chip Roy, I think, helped get House Freedom Caucus to persuade House moderates to then begin negotiations with the Senate on an 8% budget cut, thus fulfilling at, at least a one of the purported three criteria, that was when Gates basically said, no no way in hell are we going to do this. So I, I just don't understand. I mean, if it is a purely kind of personal spite, then I'm sympathetic. I don't particularly like Kevin McCarthy. I've never liked Kevin McCarthy. I think that he is a total and absolute swamp creature. He is K Street's favorite Republican. He is totally corrupt, bought and paid for by Silicon Valley, by big tech, very common for California Republicans, by the way. A, 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 a fairly common trend in that particular state where all the tech companies are located. So I have tons of issues with Kevin McCarthy, but I, I just didn't understand what, what Gates was asking for. And this is looking like extremely personal by nature. And if it's that personal, 
I, I'm I'm not sure that, that, that you know, why would why would Republicans join him if it is like really truly that personal, right? I mean, who else can Republicans get better than Ken McCarthy? I, I mean, McCarthy is kind of the devil we know. He I just laid out a lot of his flaws. I think that he is a, a deeply flawed Republican. He is not particularly ideological. He is purely transactional. But with a House majority this exceedingly narrow, I, I mean, can they really do that much better? I I, I mean. Maybe. I mean, I would take Speaker Jim Jordan, obviously, or someone like that over Kevin McCarthy. I'm not sure that that is in the offing, though. So I don't know. It's a, it's a very interesting dilemma for Hakeem Jeffries, by the way. I mean, do they kind of go with the devil they know in Kevin McCarthy or do they want to just depose McCarthy for the sheer purpose of seeing more chaos in the House Republican caucus? I guess if I were a, a House Democrat, which I am obviously not for multiple reasons, but I, I would probably err on the side of deposing McCarthy for the simple reason that McCarthy, for whatever his flaws may be, is a prolific fundraiser for the NRCC. Um, so gearing up for an election cycle, that would probably factor into my calculus, but it's it's clearly an unfolding drama. Um, for, for Gates, it, this does not play well, I guess, into kind of the, the clown car optics of that whole brigade over the past month or so. Lauren Boebert's uh, shall we say, indiscretions in a certain Denver uh, film theater, I think, playing into that as well. That whole brigade has kind of, I I, I think, very much given itself a lot of um, uh, skepticism, I guess you would say, over the past few weeks. Yeah, I mean, I really agree with, um, I think, Josh's point that that I want to see what the alternative is. Um, I'm no great fan of, of Speaker McCarthy for some of the reasons that Josh laid out, um, but I'm not seeing an alternative uh, or even um, really precise goals, uh, especially from the Gates crowd. Obviously, Chip, I basically, um, because I'm not an expert in House procedure or, or uh, legislative tactics, my my touchstone here is always Chip Roy. Um, he always seems to to have our back in terms of people who care about substantive um, legislative victories rather than than grandstanding or the personalities involved. Um, that that being said, about the the shutdown dynamics more broadly, right? Because uh, this is going to keep happening. It's going to happen in, in three months. It's going to keep happening after that. Um, we we haven't passed a normal budget. Um, and and the it's worth noting, once again, that the sclerotic legislative branch is essentially not functioning in this country um, the way that it's, it's supposed to. And I think that is an indication of one among many indications that, um, you know, that, that uh, we are in sort of this, this moment of chaos and decline. Um, but it's worth pointing out that the dynamics of a shutdown when you have a Democrat in the White House um, is are are difficult because the uh, the executive branch then determines how to implement the shutdown. And um, of course, if there's a Democratic uh, administration in the White House, they're going to try to make it as painful as possible and try to hit as many uh, things that people actually interact with as possible. So um, I remember, you know, the shutdowns a decade ago. Uh, they, they even there were people actually trying to close Mount Vernon. They closed all of the monuments on the National Mall, even though they don't require any actual. There's nobody out there usually, right? But they shut them down very theatrically. They tried to shut down Mount Vernon, which is privately run, um, and told them to get off their property, right? Well, they tried to come and shut down uh, that thing. So just it just gives an indication of the mentality. It's going to make it, you know, try to make it as painful as possible. Obviously, like the one of the main pain points here would be the um, military members who don't get their paycheck, right? Um, and just a, a final a final point. Um, yeah, actually, you know what? I'll, I'll leave that for maybe final thoughts because we don't have a lot of time. 
So, you know, briefly, one observation here is, you know, I suspect that this is this controversy and conflict is much more of a beltway story than a story for most Americans. Sure, they'll obviously get the, you know, uh, uh, regime media mouthpiece sort of perspective of it's just chaos on the right, et cetera. And, you know, devils are sitting, uh, the Democrats are sitting back and, uh, looking to exploit this situation for whatever they can. And yes, we have the Jeffries McCarthy dynamic here, obviously. But it strikes me as kind of amazing that it's considered such a radical concept to have, for example, 12 appropriations bills that are actually passed individually um, and actually exert some control over the content and the substance of spending. Um, you know, I think, look, Congressman Gates and his allies, when you look at their criticisms of Kevin McCarthy, I think they are legitimate criticisms about here are the things that McCarthy laid out at the start. Here's how what's happened. McCarthy himself has obviously tried to balance the fact that his conference is not nearly as conservative as the conservatives who actually gave him the speakership at the end of the day. Uh, I think the critique is justified of what's kind of the end game here and Ultimately, what it seems to me to be is that the likes of Gates and his colleagues on his side believe that they can do better. And the question is how much better, given the constraints and what of politics and prudence um, kind of what should they dictate in terms of what the right strategy is for actually getting back to something resembling regular order and pushing towards the goals, as noted, given who the president is and where the Senate is as well. Um, and so ultimately, the voters will have to judge, I think, ultimately, whether this is the right approach. And we'll see ultimately if Speaker McCarthy is ousted or not. But I would kind of always bet on the House. And the House itself is, of course, the establishment in this case. All right. So let's transition to uh, another newsy topic. Like we said, it's a very newsy show for you today. So Diane Feinstein, who's been a senator from California for over three decades now, passed away over the weekend, she was 90 years old. She was in very poor health. She had a, a bout with shingles that left her out of the Senate, her duties for a long time. There were a lot of articles written after she came back to her day-to-day -day duties that she was not the same, that her her staff had to remind her to, to kind of say things. It, it's not worth getting into the, the medical details. Um, she, she was obviously a liberal, I mean, a, a longstanding senator. She was, she was really part of the San Francisco Bay Area Democratic Party loyalty, right? I, I mean, Diane Feinstein and Nancy Pelosi are really the two figures who come immediately to mind, I think, when that particular term kind of uh, comes up in conversation there. She was mayor of San Francisco before that there. So on a, on a pure like replacement level proposition, I'm not sure the actual ideological makeup of the Senate is going to change a whole lot. And it kind of reminds me in a way of when Justice Stephen Breyer of the Supreme Court announced that he was retiring and then Ketanji Brown-Jackson was ultimately successfully nominated as the replacement. I mean, is the replacement who Gavin Newsom is choosing going to be you know more ardently and zealously left-wing than the at times kind of sort of pragmatic person who was on the way out the door? Yes, probably. I mean, Stephen Breyer had some kind of uh, moments where he joined the moderates and sometimes even conservatives, but they were fairly fleeting and far uh, few and far between, similar to Diane Feinstein here. So then that does bring us back to to Gavin Newsom, who's been in the news a lot. We discussed him on the show just last week with Inez having a segment on this Newsom-DeSantis debate. 
Newsom just last week after the Second Republican debate at the Reagan Presidential Library outside L.A. Newsom would, would join Sean Hannity um, to kind of uh, they talked about this upcoming debate. So it, it seems like Newsom is very clearly being kind of promoted as the guy should something happen to Joe Biden, which lays, which raises a lot of interesting questions about the potential of leapfrogging Kamala Harris. What will that do to black voters? We'll table that aside, I guess, just for now, although I think that's fair game for a conversation when we open it here. For, for for present purposes, kind of the interesting thing to me, or at least one of the interesting things to me, um, is twofold. One is, as soon as I heard that Feinstein passed, I, I predicted that Newsom would kind of string this out a little bit. I was a little surprised that he made a choice so quickly. And I thought that he would string it out purely for the optics of him kind of being this kind of magisterial kingmaker, because that really does play into his ego and into this kind of uh, promotion of him as the inevitable guy should something very bad happen to Joe Biden over the next year or so. So I was a little surprised that he, that he made a selection so quickly, similar to the Joe Biden, Katanji Brown Jackson situation. He, he, he announced very explicitly that he was going to choose a black woman, which it, you know itself is obviously on its craze, completely ludicrous and crazy, but that's the democratic party in the year 2023. For you, um, he he chose not to nominate Barbara Lee, who would have been an obvious California choice to fulfill that crit that that criteria because she is one of the contestants for the open seat next fall. Because Feinstein had already announced he's not running for re-election, Biden didn't want to put his hand on this on the scale and thus taking off Adam Schiff or Katie Porter. So he chose Lafonza Butler. Now, if you haven't heard of the name LaFonza Butler, that's not crazy. I'm not entirely confident that I had heard of her before I heard that she was Gavin Newsom's appointed choice temporarily to replace Diane Feinstein. LaFonza Butler is a, is a radical pro-abortion activist. She is the president of Emily's List, which is um, a, an atrocious organization that exists for the sole purpose of electing pro-abortion female Democrats. Um, she previously worked uh, on Kamala Harris's, I think it was her 2020 presidential campaign or one of her Senate campaigns. She's been in Kamala Harris's orbit. Um, she, she's also a lesbian, uh, apparently, as, as Gavin Newsom was very quick to point out. He was very happy of the fact that he nominated not only a black woman, but a, an open lesbian. So I, I, whatever that's worth, I guess, for your intersectional bona fides in today's Democratic Party. But the most interesting part about LaFonza Butler's biography <laughs> And uh, Matthew Foldy was the first that I saw point this out, was at the time that she was nominated, her Twitter bio listed her state as Maryland, not California. And there's all sorts of problems here. So apparently she's had a California residence for a long time, but she's primarily lived in Maryland, Silver Spring, Maryland specifically, which makes sense. She's a D.C. person. Well, Article 1, Section 3, Clause 3 of the Constitution says no person shall be a senator who shall not have attained to the age of 30 years and been nine years a citizen of the United States and who shall not, when elected, be an inhabitant of that state for which he shall be chosen, which is a fancy way of saying you have to be an inhabitant of the state, obviously, when 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 you are elected there. So very, very fascinating stuff. She doesn't it doesn't seem like she is actually an inhabitant of of California. Certainly, she's not domiciled there to go back to kind of the way this would play out at common law. Uh, this is the final thing I'll, I'll, I'll leave on. This is a fascinating point constitutionally because it's actually not justiciable in the federal judiciary. So the courts would laugh this out on the so-called political question doctrine because a separate clause in the Constitution says that the Senate itself 
shall be the judge of the own qualifications of its members. So if she's actually going to be rejected on these grounds, which there is a seriously plausible argument that she does not fulfill this, this very rudimentary criteria, the one to reject her would have to be the Senate itself. Um, which I don't think has ever happened in U.S. history, but I could be wrong about that, actually. But anyway, I'll leave it open to you guys for your thoughts on all of that. Yeah, let me, uh, for my first thought, let me channel uh, the dearly departed Rachel Bovard, who's already come up <clears throat> uh, and saying congrats to Maryland on its third senator. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I think we're we're uh, skating over something that because because we as Josh, Josh said, you know, we just become used to this from the Democratic Party, but it is, in fact, scandalous and we should treat it as such uh to lay out the demographic qualifications of uh any any nominee to higher office beforehand um so you know we all know that both the republican party uh and the democratic party frankly uh practice heavy affirmative action in their candidates and their candidate choice and their various appointments um but we've seen a more open and and robust uh like shameless uh, way of doing it uh, since since exactly that Katanji Brown Jackson uh, appointment where uh, you know Ilya Shapiro got raked over the coals for for pointing out um, that it, it is completely absurd to limit the search for one of the most powerful positions in the country beforehand uh, to limit limit it by sex and race uh, before you even get started in the search uh, and it says a lot about. Um, not only the Democratic Party, but the country as a whole, uh, that we we don't we no longer perceive that as absurd. That's all I really have to say. It is absurd and and we shouldn't lose track of how shocking it is to basically decide in advance uh, that that only black women are uh, to be considered for some of the most high, uh, important and powerful positions in the country. Well, and don't forget also, this goes back to Barack Obama with the wise Latina woman pick as well. So yeah, at this point, the, the boom is kind of off. The precedent has been set. Democrats will lay out qualifications for positions explicitly on the basis of identity and contrast that with you know, Trump, for example, laying out, here's the list of judges that I will pick from. And it's based on jurisprudence. And I think that nicely, well, first of all, that shows you that on the left identity matters because ideologically all of the left's picks are going to be the same whereas we actually have ideological diversity uh, on our side and that matters in our picks um separate and apart from that you know i do wonder and i don't necessarily have any uh, conclusion on this but worth speculating about um what kind of deals were cut to make this the pick for gavin newsom because as i understand it this is not only a left-wing ideologue pick, but someone who's a serious Democrat fundraiser. Um, you know, is there any quid pro quo here? Uh, is there any corruption, real, uh, implicit or explicit involved uh, with this pick? Um, you know, I saw some some shades of kind of Rod Blagojevich in Illinois kind of speculation out there uh, on the internet. So I'm, I'm curious to see uh, what some enterprising investigative journalists dig up here and then what does this also imply about what the fight is ultimately going to be uh for this seat next time around when it comes up obviously you have any number of ambitious left-wing ideologues who desire these democrat senate seats in california um, where does this ultimately position the likes of an adam schiff for example down the road going to be fascinating to see how that plays out and then what might this say about ultimately 
what Gavin Newsom is planning for his 2024 shadow run as well and how essential is this figure that he's just uh, tabbed for the U.S. Senate in connection therewith. So a whole bunch of interesting questions, I think, that we'll likely see play out in the coming days and weeks. I'll add uh, just briefly that uh, I remember when Kavanaugh was nominated, there was a lot of pressure on Republicans instead to pick Amy Coney Barrett, specifically because she's a woman. And at the time, I wrote an article for The Examiner that made a lot of people think that I was somehow like in the tank for Amy Coney Barrett saying that if we believe as conservatives that men and women are different, uh, then it stands to reason that there's a, an actual case for diversity uh, on the Supreme Court when it comes to men and women. There's an actual case that women will have a different and important perspective on various issues and on the other hand, though, they should still be fully qualified uh, on the issue of jurisprudence. We did not see that happen with Ketanji Brown-Jackson, and I don't think we're seeing that happen here uh, at all whatsoever. I am curious if there's a, a Blagojevich situation going on. It would probably be less with um, outright like personal bribes and more with like campaign money. I don't know. Uh, that's, that's purely speculation. There's no evidence for it. But when you have a big money fundraiser who's uh, tied to the DC establishment that's you know seems to be uh, like something somebody should look into and and finally I'll just say man Diane Feinstein what a perfect emblem of the arc of the Democratic Party um, someone who really resisted uh, the uh, extremism that she kind of let in you know she she sort of let it through the gates and then was a little bit unhappy with the consequences so I'll I'll kick it to the next segment on that point. Ben, that's to you. So uh, after we had Russiagate and two impeachments and four indictments, uh, finally, Republicans have opened an impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden. Uh, that started last week. And I think to some extent, the fact that it's kind of overshadowed by any number of other stories in the news cycle, on the one hand, maybe shows that impeachment of a president or an impeachment inquiry leading to a potential impeachment itself has been normalized to some extent, um, just as all of the most extreme remedies, I think, are being normalized uh, in this atmosphere at an ever-increasing pace. Um, Republicans, to their credit, have marshaled really a substantial amount of evidence over years, really dating back to Chuck Grassley and Senator uh, Ron Johnson as well, his colleague investigating the Biden family's international influence peddling scheme. Uh, on the eve of the open of this impeachment inquiry last week, the House Ways and Means Committee released a substantial amount of additional information, documents, etc., showing the investigation or prosecution or lack thereof that authorities have engaged in with respect to the Bidens. And I think it's still to be sifted through. Uh, but there are any number of you know bombshell pieces of information showing Joe Biden's clear involvement in the family business, the nature and extent of the international influence peddling scheme, leads that were pursued by investigators and other leads that were blocked off by their superiors uh, within the Justice Department and specifically within the Delaware U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, last week, a shameless plug here at Real Clear Investigations, uh, I put out a substantial timeline of the Hunter Biden investigation and prosecution. I'd urge folks to check that out. I think it's kind of an authoritative and comprehensive resource to go back through all of the various sagas that have 
unfolded in the last five years that are ultimately leading in part to this impeachment inquiry. Uh, but I want to talk to the actual hearing itself. And there was an asymmetry that occurred to me in watching it. So you had basically the Democrat witness on the one hand, and then three putative Republican witnesses. Uh, among them were Jonathan Turley, who kind of laid out the legal case for why opening an impeachment inquiry was merited. You had a former DOJ tax official, Eileen O'Connor, uh, and then you had another kind of forensic tax and accounting expert as well. And, you know, during the proceeding, kind of the way that the Republicans approached it was, we're going to show you here the methodical case for, here's why this inquiry is merited. Here are all the various issues at play that ought to be fully investigated. And then this is going to justify, for example, the issuance of subpoenas to James Biden, Joe Biden's brother, uh, and entities also associated with him and Hunter Biden as well. And we'll see ultimately. And, you know, I think to the criticism of the likes of, likes of Gates here, you know, why weren't these subpoenas kind of issued day one? Because we've known so much about this influence peddling scheme for years, I think is merited. But in any event, Republicans have done this in a very clear and methodical kind of way and tried to lay out the case very simply for, as Turley noted, you know, that there's arguments for pursuing obstruction and bribery and abuse of power and other corrupt articles. But what was striking to me was Republicans put up Jonathan Turley as kind of the intellectually honest liberal scholar. And Turley gave a talking point that Democrats, of course, uh, exploited and seized upon immediately, which is there's not enough today, essentially, to put forth articles of impeachment. And I was thinking to myself, could you imagine in a Democrat impeachment context, first of all, who would be the equivalent of Turley that they would put up on the stand? They wouldn't. There would be not even a token effort to try to show that there was some kind of bipartisan nature to this, except to get some, you know, never Trump kind of hater equivalent up there, former Republican. Um, but also they would never get someone who would necessarily give a talking point like that. And this is not a criticism of Turley or the Republicans necessarily. And I think Turley is a great intellectually honest a jurisprudential figure, legal scholar. But it's striking that Democrats, you know, if they were going to have an impeachment inquiry, the case would be done in their minds and presented as such. There would never be a, we're going to show you, we're going to marshal all this evidence, and then we're going to break down very clearly and slowly and convincingly why an inquiry, not even the articles, are merited. And just strikes me once again that I, I laid out at the top, you know, a Russiagate, two impeachments, four indictments. And here you have an impeachment inquiry after really years worth of evidence having been developed by Republicans. And it's just a striking asymmetry. The other side would be ready to hang the Republican equivalent of Joe Biden. And here, Republicans are laying out the case slowly, clearly, concisely, methodically. Um, so I wonder what you all make of this inquiry, uh, what its significance is, but then also this asymmetry that I've laid out here. And does the asymmetry reflect a lack of understanding what time it is and kind of the nature of the political foe? Is this something that's never going to be bridged, essentially, the difference between how Republicans and Democrats would approach an impeachment or other extreme political remedies? Uh, I kind of want to open it up to your thoughts on, on my thoughts. All right. I, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure if I have a hot take here. That's why I was a little hesitant to jump in. I watched a little bit of the impeachment inquiry not a ton of it 
I, I, I mean, it, Jonathan Turley was literally a registered Democrat until like yesterday, I think, right? I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit. I'm not, I'm not even sure what his political affiliation is. I mean, I mean, he's, he's certainly not a conservative. I mean, he's kind of like a Dershowitz-esque figure where he's kind of like a, like an intellectually honest, classical, old school. Yeah, like like a 1960s 1970s ACLU era liberal is kind of my my vague perception of Jonathan Turley like maybe with like a slight preference for like laissez-faire economics or something like that right I mean he's like a libertarian-ish figure um I, I I mean Comer had to do better than that right I mean like he had to know that something was coming and and it's really just shocking I I think how ill-prepared it was I heard that a lot of House Republicans behind closed doors were were quite critical of Comer there were some rumors that that I think I read that some people were trying to transfer this impeachment inquiry out of the House Oversight Committee over to Jim Jordan on Judiciary Committee some spokesman from Jim Jordan shot down those rumors for whatever that is worth here clearly Comer is going to have to do substantially Better than that, one thing that I did think of watching this and kind of connecting it to our previous segment here, and really, really, to what, frankly, to what you said, Ben, Democrats are so good at giving their voters what they want, um, uh, means essentially be damned. And yes, taken to an extreme place, that's obviously like the Alinskyite ends justified the means thing. But within the confines of not crazy they're still way better at it than republicans are um i i, I mean like is is lafonza butler arguably an inhabitant under the constitutional language yeah she's arguably an inhabitant i think probably not and that's why gavin newsom is happy to give up this you know token black female lesbian abortion fanatic to the democrat base i mean when would republican voters ever skirt around the rules a little bit to to deliver for their voters so it, there's just this systemic inequality, frankly, to kind of borrow almost a leftist phrase between the way that Democrats and Republicans approach the desires and needs of their own voters. The final thing I'll just very briefly say is that the lackluster nature of this opening hearing kind of reaffirmed for me that the course of action that I would have, have that I would have preferred to have seen is not necessarily starting with Biden, but really trying to impeach Mayorkas, because that is much lower hanging and frankly, much more obvious fruit, I think. You know, it's, it's a really interesting question that I've heard batted around a lot in conservative circles uh, on Capitol Hill for the last few months. And uh, maybe the impeachment hearing was evidence against where they ultimately landed. There was a lot of consternation. There's a lot of pressure from what I'm hearing um, from sort of the grassroots activists to move on um, Hunter, to move on deep state stuff. Uh, and, you know, I think politically what's more palatable on a national level is definitely the border uh it's, it's just it, that's that is bipartisan it's appealing to independents uh who don't follow the minutiae of the hunter stuff or the deep state stuff um but I, I will say you know it's just amazing like the turley question again amazing when you look at what the purpose of the impeachment process is what an inquiry is it's in the name inquiry inquire um, the coverage of that in the media was beyond shameful. It was completely par for the course, not surprising in the least. But 
uh, oh my gosh, it's so you know, this this idea that Republicans don't have a scrap of evidence implicating Joe Biden is the the talking point was just shared literally like a talking points memo, uh, media wide, unthinkingly, uh, in a way that does an incredible disservice to people. So to, to average voters. So I mean, to to the extent that Republicans can be smart about this and continue hammering at home, it is Sisyphean. Um, but there are clever ways to do it. That's for sure. Um, just a few brief points. One, I mean, it's not shocking to me that Republicans select bad witnesses for, for hearings. Um, we've done that fairly consistently, even in my own little, you know, corner of the policy world. Uh, I was amazed to discover that Republicans managed to select, they only had the opportunity, and this is when the Democrats held the House, to select one witness, for example, for an ERA hearing, an Equal Rights Amendment hearing. And they decided to choose as their witness someone only to speak to the procedural uh, questions surrounding the ERA, uh, and who at the outset said they support the substance. So, uh, you know, the fact that Republicans select basically uh, a lot of witnesses who are half on the other side is, is not shocking. Um, look, impeachment is a political process and a political act. I'm not even sure why, uh, like on the substance of what Turley said, like whether you think it rises to impeachment or not, uh, is a political question, not a legal one. Um, and and there there really isn't any standard of, of evidence by which, um, other than, of course, the truth, right? Um, but there isn't, like, this isn't a courtroom. Uh, it, it's, it's an impeachment hearing and it's inherently... I know this is a pre-whatever impeachment hearing, but um, the, on the question of impeachment itself, it doesn't seem to me to actually connect with the reality to talk about uh, whether or not something rises to the level of impeachment. Um, that question is only a political question, and it's clear that the standard for what rises to the level of impeachment um, has has been considerably considerably watered down, at least since Clinton. Um, and we, we've been through now many impeachments at this point uh, in, in our political lives, which would not have been the case uh, had we been talking about these issues, right, uh, at, at a different time when it was extremely and exceedingly rare. Um, that's just, But again, that's a political question. It's not because the evidence here does not rise to the level that it would in a courtroom. Um, none of the other impeachments did either. I think there's plenty, uh, plenty to go on and plenty of evidence to go on here. But ultimately, the adjudication of that is not a legal question. It's a political one. Um, and then finally, yes, it's it's somewhat uh, trite to say, but the reason this is why that the the um, the media being so firmly in the propaganda tank for the for the Democratic Party really does matter. And I know that we all work for sort of conservative media ho um, media outlets and write for conservative media outlets, and we have big hopes for the quote-unquote the new media or, or uh, to challenge um, the, the legacy outlets at some point. Um, the fact is that you can see here how important that it is that we haven't hit that tipping point yet, right? Because th this is something that in any fair analysis should be getting um, should be getting a ton of attention from from the uh, nation's media, and and should their it's their job then to inform voters about what's what's happening, um, and and what the details of it are. And there's no interest at all except to pull out something like this Turley statement and try to make it seem like a political farce. Um, and again, I know that that's a, a you know, <laughs> I know that we all know that the media is in the tank. It almost doesn't bear repeating. 
Um, but in this case, you really see how not having, and, and I know that Emily hates this phrase, mainstream media, but that's really what it is. It's mainstream purchase on the questions that, that the country is discussing at any given moment um, and how not having that anywhere close to even set in the middle, let alone like covering conservative concerns, right? How that really does continue to damage not just the prospects of the Republican Party or the ability to impeach the president for what is, I think, very, very clear uh, influence peddling at this point with just the public information that's available. So not just damage those prospects for the Republican Party, but damage our you know ability to have an actual debate on Frankly, Emily, you pointed to, you know, immigration, like we can't have a normal debate uh, on immigration where 70 or 75 percent of the country actually agrees with the right um, because it's not going to be covered in the quote unquote mainstream in the same way. All right. Well, let's transition right back to you, Inez, for our final segment. Um. Yes. Yeah, so uh, as as previewed last week, um, I, I noted that, that there would be a, a sort of financial earthquake uh, as people's student loan payments resume. Um, that that week is this week. Um, it, it, there, there's all kinds of reasons to think that this is this is going to not be very good um, for for the economy uh, in in part because people are already stretched so thin with inflation, generally poor economic outlook. There's a lot of evidence that there's a large number of Americans who are essentially running up credit card debt, and that's the only way that they're staying afloat. Now factor in payments of 250 or 500 or 700 or you know $1,200 a month that they have not had built into their budgets for the last two and a half years um, it, it is going to be difficult for, for a lot of American families. Um, and that, that difficulty is going to translate into a certain amount of political urgency to do something about these loans. I've, I've, I've noted before um, several key facts, which are I think are often lost in the, the um, sort of debate to the extent that we discuss this. Um, one is that we already own these loans, and I'm surprised by the number of people who don't uh, understand that. I mean, and in some sense, it's understandably because uh, it's not an obvious conclusion. It's not really, uh, I think it's not really expected in the American system that the government itself is making and holding these loans. So in other words, you, you the taxpayer, are the creditor already. So if these loans don't get paid, you're not getting paid. Um, that's that's the, uh, you know, that that's the fundamental dynamic, because I see a lot of, of um, stuff being flung around about uh, one about like let the banks eat it. There are no banks. You are the bank, right? Um, or 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 two about bankruptcy. That student loans. It's not fair that student loans can't be put into bankruptcy. Um, I don't think that's a good idea for a variety of wonky policy reasons. Um, but it's worth remembering that you are sitting on the other side of the bankruptcy pr proceeding as a creditor um, who is going to be stiffed. So if we had, for example, mass bankruptcy, it would be the same as a taxpayer bailout. It is a taxpayer bailout by another name. Um, so I think that the pressure is the political pressure around this is only going to um, build up a final a final fact is we don't really know. And we should know by the end of the month, like how many of these payments are actually going to be made. Um, and how many people are actually even going to be able to financially make these payments um, before the pandemic. So from numbers from 2019, uh, we knew that about half of these loans were likely to go into default by this year, 2023. And that's before the pandemic, before the inflation, before like everything that's been roiling our economy for the last, you know, three years. Um, 
So we know that a large percentage of people were not going to be able to make their payments by this year um, on, on these loans. So some substantial percentage of them will go into default and, and will go into crisis in that sense. Um, again, all of this, I think, is going to build to a uh, an issue that the Democrats are going to seize on uh, quite effectively. Um, so, I, you know, I, I put forward my proposal for it. I, I think if if um, if we're going to have a bailout, which it seems clear to me that we we will functionally, whether we pass a bailout or not, um, just because we own these loans and so many people are going to default, right? So. Um, <clears throat> we're going to functionally have a bailout one way or the other. The question is, is who pays for it? And um, to my mind, the only just and politically uh, savvy answer is is the university. Um, they've benefited enormously from public largesse for the last several decades. It's allowed them to charge absurd prices for a product that is totally disconnected from the value uh, of a degree. They have, again, benefited enormously from that. They've been able to expand their DEI rosters of administrators and build millions of feet of new construction that isn't classroom use. Um, this is like rock climbing walls and lazy rivers and stuff like that. Uh, they have, have been doing that for the last several decades, and it's time that they actually contribute to uh, to contribute to the, the political problem that's caused. Uh, and I, so I, I think we should tax them to raise the money for this bailout. But this bailout is going to happen. Um, and I think it's going to continue to be just like immigration continues to be sort of a sleeper issue in the sense that every so often it, be, it bursts into, because it can't be ignored anymore, bursts into public view, but it's actually happening all the time. Like the chaos and the people crossing the borders happening every single day. Um, and and our political class only notices it when it bursts through into the media. I think the same thing is somewhat true, although I, I will grant that the border is probably a, a priority issue over this, but I do think it's a similar sort of sleeper issue. It has, it impacts um, something like, you know, 50 million Americans um, in terms of their their household budgets. There's there's a generation and a half of, of students at this point whose uh, financial trajectory is in many ways, and, and life trajectory is in many ways uh, defined and influenced by this issue. Um, it's going to continue to be, and it's going to continue to affect our politics. I think so far in a very negative way, and and by that I mean positively for for the left and the Democratic Party until the Republican Party and the right confront this issue, come forward with our own solutions. Um, and and uh, I think there's a very very. I think I have a good proposal to do that, but um, there may be other proposals, but we, we can't continue to ignore this issue because it is going to burst into our politics. And I'm um, curious what, what you all uh, have to say about student loan repayments restarting this week. Well, I think your proposal is a great one. And I think the other thing to highlight on what you said is there's really no end in sight. So a generation and a half of Americans uh, largely swimming in this debt, whether it's really big, you have some outliers and there are a lot of outliers, by the way, it doesn't mean they aren't outliers, but there are a lot of them who have this like six figure debt. Um, and then there are with, with, by the way, no hope to paying it off, not you know to law school, but six figure debt for uh, a liberal arts degree that's not working for them right now um, or you have people even if it is just ten thousand dollars even if it is closer to the average of around forty thousand dollars that is life-changing money that changes your uh, ascent into adulthood in your 20s and in your 30s and uh, it is a generation and a half in the throes of this right now but also uh, if not for proposals like Inez if not for serious Republicans uh, Republican efforts um, and and maybe even bipartisan efforts but I doubt that but Republican efforts to coalesce 
around an innovative policy proposal like Inez's, there's nothing that is going to stop this. Nothing. I mean, it, it will grow and grow. The problem will get worse and worse and worse. It's one of the big problems with the bailouts that Democrats want to do. Um, what you're doing is subsidizing and creating incentives for universities to continue jacking up their prices. It's, it's only going to get more expensive if you bail them out. Uh, we know how this works. We have run that experiment. It's pretty clear that you're going to put more and more kids in debt if you do a, a a, a bailout, a, a typical bailout like that, which unlike Inez's doesn't create incentives uh, where it doesn't create incentives for cost cutting. Inez's has that. And I think that is the one thing that is crucial to to any reform efforts in the space. Yeah, uh, so I'll be really brief. I think it was uh, very apt and uh, is the bottom line here that Democrats will exploit this uh, when Inez made that point and Republicans have to be ready with a response to it. But stepping back to 30,000 feet, it just strikes me that everything and everyone is so in hoc to the state here. You have the universities themselves either implicitly or explicitly in hoc to the state, as noted, the incentive structure is such that they can continue to jack up the tuitions, knowing that ultimately they will not be on the hook for it to the extent a proposal like Inez is talking about uh, isn't actually executed. You have a generation of people who are in debt and de facto in hoc to the state at the end of the day. Um, and all of this creates more dependency um, and more of a focus, of course, on schools that themselves are indoctrination factories at the end of the day that we will ultimately be subsidizing and underwriting one way or another. And this is this represents a, this will be another boon to the left all around funded by us at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, how do you get out of that politically? And then in terms of a policy, well, one one method has been laid out here. Um, but I think ultimately uh, it, it's it's clear that the schools at every single level are the fundamental problem. After the breakdown of family structure, it is schools. And the funding mechanism here just creates another bubble and problem on top of the other problems built in ideologically and beyond. The last kind of sort of glib comment that I'd make, but somewhat seriously, is that if the schools that were purported liberal arts schools actually taught liberal arts in the classical sense, they would far better prepare students for the world than the liberal arts education being uh, administered today. So I, 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 I'm really not sure that I have a whole lot to add here. I basically defer to Inez when it comes to this issue. This is her baby, and I, 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 I essentially agree with everything that you've ever written and said on this issue, Inez. So I adopt, uh, as the as the contractual lawyer term may be, I adopt hereby your arguments in this part of, of, of the segment. Um, Arthur Millick also had a great essay on this, Suicide by Higher Education, if I remember the name of the essay from our, our friend Arthur on National Affairs a few years ago. This is obviously a terrible problem. I mean, I, I guess I will say the, the Republican mentality of just ignoring this and pretending like it will go away and just being like the ostrich kind of ducking your head in the sand, that obviously is not a viable strategy. I mean, there's something has to happen here. Um, and I think Inez is totally right when she says that this is going to be a, a, a functional uh, bailout, a functional bankruptcy proceeding. So it's really just a question as to how we go about doing that. Um, Meanwhile, as Ben says, the education bureaucracy only kind of engorges itself and get and, and gets worse and worse. I mean, the, you know, the silver lining, I guess, is that 
you know, as the Wall Street Journal has said, at least across corporate America, the number of DEI hacks has has slow. The rate of increase has actually been been slowing down pretty dramatically. Forty uh, percent was was the number that I saw. I'm not entirely sure exactly how much that has um, also cross affected the academy. I suspect that, that the slowdown in the rate of increase is less than corporate America. Um, I defer to Inez or others if there are actual kind of hard hard data on that right now. But clearly, this is an issue that needs kind of thoughtful, conservative policy wonks like our own Inez to, to think hard and long about and I'm grateful that she is doing so. Um, so uh, with that, let's transition to, to final thoughts here. Does anyone want to get us started? So I'll start with just one piece of breaking news as we're recording this, which is that, um, again, it's kind of an afterthought in this news cycle, but Hunter Biden appeared in court again today. We're recording this on Tuesday, uh, pled not guilty to gun charges that he is obviously guilty of uh, pretty much by his own admission in his own book, essentially. Um, and as one of the conditions of release, he has to be employed. Uh, it'll be curious to see if he ultimately argues that as an artist selling paintings to people around the world and donors to the Democrat Party, if that qualifies as being employed or not. Uh, and it'll be kind of it's kind of a meta situation there in terms of the broader influence peddling scheme and the charges associated with it that the DOJ has still yet to bring against him, but that we're seeing kind of politically litigated via this impeachment inquiry. And then the other uh, small point that I know it is, and I think Josh might have alluded to this or spoken a bit to it on last week's episode when I was out, uh, but Lee Smith has a great piece in Tablet on the Iranian spy ring that's uh, sort of been exposed in recent weeks. Uh, we've known for a while that Rob Malley, who was kind of Obama's man in Tehran last time around, and then under the Biden administration, continued in that role and trying to work towards uh, a continuation or I guess sort of an Iran deal 2.0. Uh, he left office for an, a quote unquote academic perch while under investigation. And it seems that he was essentially leading or corrupted by what amounts to a massive uh, Iran regime tied influence peddling ring in Washington, D.C. And what's striking about the story is how big of a scandal this is on almost every single level from the perspective of policy, from the perspective of where is our counterintelligence in this? How could they not have known the backgrounds of the individuals implicated? Uh, and what Leah essentially surmises is that they had to know and kind of the bugs were the feature here. Uh, and that's almost more terrifying than anything else. Uh, while others are framed as being you know, foreign agents, and that's used as a cudgel to attack political opponents of the regime. In this case, because the regime is essentially on the side of, in effect, the Iranian regime, uh, people get away scot-free. Now, why ultimately Mali himself got exposed and they felt they needed to push him aside is kind of interesting in and of itself. Um, you know, you would love to think that our security services actually knew that you had Iranian agents of influence within our government and were surveilling them. Uh, but I think that's probably hoping for too much and too ambitious based upon everything that we've known. But of course, you know, again, obviously, and we always go back to this, but were this the Trump administration, I mean, how many people would have been impeached already? And we'd be talking about treason charges, probably. Literally in the media, treason charges would probably be being bandied about here, whereas this is barely even a story in Washington, D.C., 
what a damning indictment, of course, of our ruling regime and what the consequences have been for our national security and foreign policy are also dire and yet to be deeply explored, but I suspect will be in the weeks ahead. Another thing Lee raises in that piece that's interesting is the the possibility, because they had to have known, again, like they're incompetent, but they're not quite incompetent not to have known, uh, the possibility that there's, to, I'm trying to make it sound less pulpy, but there's a, a double agent uh, type situation, uh, there, there was potentially a double agent type situation happen. It is all so bizarre that uh, we'll just the amount of answers that need to be uh, brought to the surface are it's hard to even count them. The other thing that I wanted to talk about is the big Politico piece uh, that dropped on Monday about Ukraine funding and how the Biden administration was privately a lot more concerned about corruption uh, than it was willing to admit publicly. Uh, you know, I, I think it gets at this question that it, obviously corruption is a huge problem in Ukraine. Obviously, the, the vast amount of taxpayer resources that we've sent over to Ukraine, even you know though it's a small percentage of our defense budget, it's a lot of American taxpayer dollars. Um, it's, a, it's a huge problem in a context of a very corrupt country. All that is to say, it is uh, a very immediate problem that is often talked about in abstract terms by the left about the ultimate credibility of the United States going around the world and uh, talking about democratic norms, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's sometimes a cheap shot from the left. In this case, the left is not making that point at all. And we have a very immediate situation where the president of the United States is implicated. He was part of the corruption in Ukraine. That is beyond dispute at this point. He was, uh, in, he was meeting with his son's business partners, oligarchs, in Ukraine, uh, th this is not like th this is beyond dispute. The extent to which perhaps he was knowingly implicated, you can argue. You cannot argue that he was involved in corruption in Ukraine. And he is now his administration is tasked with managing all of that money by saying uh, lecturing the Ukrainians on their corruption, saying we need to root out corruption in Ukraine. Otherwise, you don't get this money. It was just an absurd and stupid uh, situation to be in. Uh, and the media, of course, didn't want to talk about this uh, when he was when voters were making the decision as to whether they should elect him president of the United States. Pretty salient. But of course, we didn't have a conversation about it. So uh, I was actually planning on talking about this Ukraine thing. So Emily stole my thunder a little bit there. But something else that I thought I would mention also on Tuesday morning, the morning that we're recording this, the, apparently the Washington, D.C. police has this statistic that they've released to the public that the average murder suspect in Washington, D.C. has 11 prior arrests, double digit prior arrests. This is obviously not a situation that is at all unique to Washington, D.C. Virtually everywhere you see this light on crime, this Soros, this progressive prosecutor, so-called so -called criminal justice reform mentality take hold. This is the problem, whether it is Larry Krasner, the DA in Philadelphia, whether it is Alvin Bragg in New York City, Chesa Boudin, who was recalled last year in San Francisco, or his ill-begotten successor, George Gascon in Los Angeles. The list just goes on and on and on. Kimberly Fox up in Chicago is another terrible example here. And, you know, at, at some point, are you going to stop electing these idiotic district at attorneys or not? I mean, I, I, at some point, like, I, I, are you going to, like, see the actual carnage and bloodshed or not? And, you, you know, I, 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 I guess the question thus far, unfortunately, the answer kind of speaks for itself that, that people are, are not stopping this ridiculous activity. 
but God willing, it will happen soon because, I mean, as of now, criminal justice reform just looks ever more like civilizational suicide, which is what I've called it in the past. Um, yeah, so it's funny because we're all leading each other here. I was going to bring up the crime issue um, with regard to this Philadelphia journalist, Josh Kruger, who was killed uh, in, in his home. I mean, we don't still don't know what the details of that uh, that crime were. Uh, apparently, there wasn't a sign of poor sentry, so it may be something more personal. Um, but, uh, and I, I'm not, you know, I, I, I guess I still have some scruples because I'm not interested in dunking on this guy who... Uh, was essentially saying that the Philadelphia crime raise was no big deal, um, only to be a victim of it himself. Um, not really interested in dunking on him in specific, but uh, yeah, I think the the crime issue and the law and order issue continue, continues to be incredibly salient. I'm not as black pilled about it as as uh, what Josh laid out because simply put, because there have been massive swings even in blue urban areas and the vote for a lot of these things. Now you're starting. At a, you know, you're starting in a position in most of those cities where Republicans are, you know, 10 or 15, maximum 20 percent of the vote. So you're starting from a very low point. But there have been like L.A. almost by a hair elected a Republican mayor. So like that is actually a remarkable statement on where a lot of people do end up with with the crime. And now, I think East Coast and West Coast cities um confront in many ways different problems. Uh, I think in the East Coast cities, it tends to be really a huge rise in violent crime. And while there is a rise in violent crime in Portland, San Francisco, LA, um, they seem to have a much bigger problem with with keeping order in terms of public streets and public order. I mean, downtown LA is essentially run by the insane homeless um, at this point. So uh, both cities have, both coasts have both problems, but I, I think one is elevated more in the California context uh, and the other one, um, more in the East Coast context. But I, I think this is an issue that actually does, it convinces moderates to vote Republican. It even convinces some Democrats to vote Republican um, because this is something that they they really can't uh, avoid unless uh, it just depends on the structure of the city um, in, in a city like New York. Like, yes, of course, money always allows you to avoid a lot of things, um, but people still depend on the subway. There's a lot of rich people who take the subway in New York. Um you know, the, everything is closer together. Like you can avoid some of the the worst spots, but if crime generally in the city uh, continues to go up, um, you know, rich people walk on the streets of New York too. So there's a limit to uh, how much you can separate yourself. Uh, more sprawled cities, just you're going to see the emptying out of the the urban core. I think that's what you're, you're going to see in LA, which has essentially become a um, like a, <laughs> a third world, uh, you know, country in latin america um what, what what's happened is is that their luxury buildings uh, downtown where people own condos uh, are adding i think i've mentioned this on this program before but they're they're adding so-called amenities decks um where you can essentially uh go like a convenience store where you can pick up everything you need if you're you know missing a few ingredients for the dinner you're making um or or need new shampoo you can actually do that from within your building uh same thing grabbing a, a like sort of happy hour drink they have little bars they're building into basically they're building in a little city into these luxury condos because the prospect of going down and and setting foot on the streets of downtown Los Angeles uh particularly at night is is so unappealing and dangerous um, that you're you're kind of having an Eloy and Morlock situation where like all the rich people are sort of essentially living up above above street level um, and and only leaving in the safety of their cars. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's going to continue to be a a, uh, a salient and important issue. Um, 
and actually I want just to put a, a brief point on this. I think it was an underrated uh, reason or, or something that where a lot of people lost faith with Trump um, during his presidency when the 2020 series of riots and, and disorder in the cities happened. And it was a very impotent thing on his part, I think, to be tweeting in all caps, law and order, as the cities burned. Um, and and yes, I understand all the implications and that actually, you know, for the most part, governors and, and mayors are in charge of this. Um, I have a, you know, I have some legal thoughts about whether or not it, it, he had the power to call out the National Guard. But in any case, um, regardless of, of what the actual facts were, I think the perception um the perception of the messaging saying, oh, this will be Joe Biden's America. Well, yes, it is Joe Biden's America, but it was also happening under the Trump administration and people tend to blame the buck stops with the guy at the top. Um, so in any case, I, I think it will continue to be a, a salient political issue. I think a smart Republican um, slate will will continue to put it in, in front and center and in, in the top several issues in, uh, in that that. Um, uh, sort of list of top issues with the economy and the border. I, I think it is really one of those issues that's touching people's lives in a very direct way and where we can make inroads with people who might be uh, not in agreement with us on other issues. All righty. Well, on behalf of Ben, Emily, Ananez, I'm Josh Hammer. Thank you for tuning in. We will see you at the next NatCon Squad.